It's a blessing to see all of you, and I'm so happy to have us gathered together before God on this uh, Convocation Day. The faculty, you are here. You look great. It's a blessing and honor to work with this faculty, and our staff members are also here who work so hard to serve our community. Since 2002, the Gallup Polling Group has been issuing an annual report regarding American perceptions of the moral climate of our country. Gallup tracks attitudes about 19 moral issues, ranging from abortion to doctor-assisted suicide, extramarital affairs, as well as general perceptions about the overall moral climate of the country. This year, American overall perceptions about the moral climate of our country has slipped to its lowest point. In the Gallup poll, more than four in five people, 81%, now rate the state of moral values in our country as only fair or poor. In a recent Pew study, they asked Americans about their general perceptions of the moral climate and what it, they thought it meant for our future. An astonishing 77% of Americans believed not only was the moral climate of our country in decline, but that they were either very worried or fairly worried about what this means for the future of our country. Uh, similar studies have been done throughout other countries in the world. The decline in the moral fabric of our country or any country is certainly a matter of great concern for us all. However, it may not be the biggest concern we face. Could it be that our dilemma as a nation is actually deeper than even our friends at Gallup Poll or at Pew fully recognize? Our problem, more fundamentally, has been the loss of moral categories and therefore the loss of a proper moral argument at all. One of the more insightful moral philosophers who has thought about our situation is the Scottish philosopher Alsdair MacIntyre in his classic work, After Virtue. He argues that while there's plenty of evidence of declining morals in Western society, the more profound challenge is the inability to even frame a moral argument. We no longer have sufficient shared assumptions as a culture to reach any kind of consensus on moral questions, whether based on a Judeo-Christian ethic found in Holy Scripture or Aristotle's account of virtues and human flourishing in his Nicomachean Ethics. Therefore, with the loss of any foundation for moral argument, the only path for contemporary society is to find new ways to endlessly accommodate human preferences within an ever-increasingly fractured society. This loss of moral framework means that despite the ongoing use of moral language and various cultural arguments, there can be no final resolution, or what McIntyre calls a terminus point. He cites various common moral debates within society, demonstrating that they, because there's no shared moral framework in these national conversations, they end up not being conversations at all, with pros and cons evaluated based on a shared moral framework, rather they end up as staged shouting matches where we just yell at one another. McIntyre calls this descent of ethics into shouting in the 21st century Western world as emotivism. He describes emotivism as the point you reach when, quote, all morals are nothing but expressions of personal preference. Or another point, he says, quote, expressions of attitudes or feelings, end quote. 
Think of the sheer force of moral questions which are posed to our society today. Is it morally permissible for the state to execute someone for a crime? Are state lotteries morally acceptable? What is the definition of marriage? Do we have a moral obligation to protect someone who flees a murderous regime and comes to the border of our country seeking asylum? Is profiling a legally permissible method of law enforcement? Is it permissible to utilize the service of a doctor to end your own life? Should race be a determinative factor in college admissions? Should insurance companies pay for gender reassignment surgery? Are reparations for past sins a form of just resolution? You see, the list goes on and on. These are just a few of the questions which have presented themselves to our culture in recent years, and we know how these questions play out. Quite tragically, our deepest moral questions today are resolved, not through moral argumentation on either side, but through the the exertion of my will over your will by means of power. This is probably best exemplified in our culture by the now all-too-familiar 5-4 vote on the Supreme Court. Sadly, the church itself has not been immune to this loss of moral argumentation. That's probably one of the greatest tragedies of all. Similar will-to-power votes have happened in churches under convict. A recent well-publicized example can be seen in the famous 438 to 384 vote on human sexuality at the General Conference of the Amethyst Church this past February. While I was pleased the church stood for historic orthodoxy, I was disappointed that despite over two years of special study on this topic, the church never engaged in anything remotely close to a proper moral argument where a case was laid out biblically, historically, theologically, pastorally, etc. Instead, we only got what all moral, moral arguments become in our day, namely what McIntyre calls, I'm quoting him here, the clash of antagonistic wills. This is the deeper malaise, which I'm highlighting, not merely the decline of morals, but the collapse of the very categories which make, make any kind of moral argument possible. We are actually not simply in a crisis of moral epistemology, that is, how do we know whether something is right or wrong, or the meaning of moral sentences, how they interact with one another. That's the hard work of ethicists, and we've always had that challenge. But more profoundly, a crisis of moral ontology. Moral ontology asks if morals objectively exist independently, or are morals merely the mental and societal constructs with no objective foundation. It seems that as a society, the retreat of the Christian worldview has left us in a deep mire, with no objective foundation for the very concept and framework of morality. Well, certainly part of the mission of Asbury Theological Seminary is to recognize the inherent problems with emotivism as a moral solution in our culture. We can't simply accept the move from I think to I feel, but also to resist the temptation to simply accept this collapsed moral state and engage in some form of power politics, some Christianized version of Nietzsche's will to power. Beloved, this is not some esoteric convocation address, which has nothing to do with your future ministry. (laughs) 
I hope not. No, this challenge is at the heart of what you are facing in your lives and your future ministries. Because what goes on in the halls of Congress, in the floors of our denominational meetings, is going on in Sunday schools and homes and schools and workplaces across America and in various degrees around the world. Therefore, I want to propose three possible solutions or new emphases to address this state that we're now in. First, embodying the means of grace. Although we live in a time when the wider culture cannot hear an argument, as it were, they cannot so easily dismiss someone who embodies it. The embodying of truth, wholeness, and human flourishing is one of the most powerful testimonies to God's existence in the world, and it can't be ignored. As Christians, we must remember by begin by remembering that moral values are intrinsic to persons, not to things. So we talk about kindness, fairness, generosity, justice, faithfulness, all of these. These are not simply values out there hanging in disembodied space, but they're embodied in God himself. And then in us as persons created in the image of God. Ethics, therefore, is personal, flowing from the very nature of God who created us in his image and made us to be his image bearers in the world. Even Aristotle knew there must be some external fixed point, the so-called unmoved mover or fixed cause, which later Aquinas identified as God in Aristotelian ethics. But even that is lost today. We didn't have an unmoved mover. In classical scholastic theology, the Latin phrase described God as the norma norman sed non normata, the norm of norms which cannot be normed. That is an objective being who is objectively outside the material universe and who has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world as the full embodiment of truth and righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the foundation for so much of our challenges today. Even Aristotle understood that when we do not embody the virtues, there will be a gap between our lives and genuine human flourishing. And that gap is where we find depression, anxiety, fear, rage, and so forth. In the recent tragic shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in California on July 28th, someone in the midst of that shooting screamed out to the active shooter, Why are you doing this? To which he reportedly replied, because I am very angry. Active shooters leading to tragic deaths, as we've seen recently in Dayton, in El Paso, and then just days ago in Odessa, are all signs that we are not flourishing as a culture. Therefore, as Christians, when we embody the virtue and the means of grace, we will flourish as a community. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, I lived in a culture very much depraved. Paul said to the church, quote, We are to be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Amen? What does it avail us if we win a nasty fight over the definition of marriage, some political fight, but our own marriages are falling apart. Wesley taught us that God has provided means of grace which enable us to grow and incorporate the life of Christ within us on a daily basis. 
so we can be those lights shining out. Wesley described the means of grace as outward signs, words, or actions employed by God and appointed to this end to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey, convey prevenient, justifying, or sanctifying grace. This will be the theme that we explore this year as a community. You see many of the sermons there in the handout. And Wesley suggested that things like public reading of Scripture, receiving the Eucharist, prayer, fasting, obedience to God's Word, denying yourself, works of piety, many others, are means of grace which are essential to us if we are to embody the holiness that's required in our day. But for this address, I want to see the means of grace not only in personal terms, that is to help us mature spiritually and grow in our personal lives. It's never less than that. But we must also see the larger missional power, the public witness of the embodied means of grace when embodied by the church. If the world meets someone who is prayerful, who does works of piety, who selflessly serves the poor, and even amazingly, who on Sunday morning does not sleep in, but puts them, that wouldn't be you, of course, other people, don't sleep in, but put themselves in the presence of Christ and the baptized community on Sunday morning. That has a powerful effect. It is, it is G.K. Chesterton who famously said that even those who reject the doctrine of the incarnation are different from having heard of it. You see, it's missional. Just to believe and embody the gospel is missional. The very idea that God became one of us has a powerful force upon the human psyche. It challenges our imaginations and forces someone to reassess God's whole relationship with the world. In the same way, a church which embodies the means of grace, it invades the imagination. It forces a society to consider there just might be a loving God who rules and reigns the universe and who can actually have a transformative effect upon our lives. If we don't do that, if we are not transformed by the gospel, it doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't even matter how theologically accurate we are. We will be seen, and rightfully so, by the way, as using religion as demagogues or charlatans serving some political agenda. We lose our witness when we embody the brokenness that the world has. We must embody something distinctive, and the people of God. Authentic embodiment is the necessary foundation for public proclamation. Our culture today is very uneasy with strong moral statements. In today's climate, ethical statements come across as inherently judgmental. To love someone today means in the wider culture to affirm whatever it is they happen to say or believe. Likewise, to disagree with someone in today's emotive climate is almost de facto to say you do not love that person. Yet this climate is actually another sign of the inability to frame a moral argument because we live in a culture of self-invention. That is, nothing extrinsic to yourself can be used as a standard for evaluation of a right or wrong course of action. We are in a mire. Richard Dawkins, the zoologist who's gained fame as an outspoken atheist, voiced without realizing it the culture of self-invention when he refers to our existence as, I quote him here, as a blind, unconscious process which Darwin discovered and which has no purpose. This is the worldview that's around us. 
This new view seeks to separate the created order from any moral framework at all. Camilla Paglia, the popular author and activist, she wrote, Fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. This we now live, therefore, in a cultural climate where all meaning is subjective and arbitrary extensions of human autonomy. Now, this culture of self-invention is unleashing measurable, observable chaos in the decline of human flourishing. The polls cited earlier prove that the wider culture is aware of it, but they have no idea why this has happened or what to do to address it. This presents a huge opportunity for the church to embody this in such a way that the world will take notice. Embodying the means of grace will give you and me a permission slip to the culture once again to engage in moral argument. And this is why we're inviting hundreds of you to be a part of Wesleyan accountability bands because these micro-communities are the foundation point for re-emerging as a holy community. Number two, the second suggestion is the mind as the neglected sphere of spiritual formation. This has been one of the most neglected aspects of a holistic understanding of spiritual formation. In a post-Christendom, increasingly post-Christian world, faith exists only in a diminished, domesticated, privatized form with its locust in the heart. Even we, at times get lulled into the notion that spiritual formation is only a matter of the heart. And we look back over church history, I think about many explosive moments, like the Great Schism in 1054, boom, split east and west. I think about the Protestant Reformation, 1517. We've had a lot of momentous, explosive moments in the history of the church. But certainly one that is less talked about happened when we have the split of separation of theology and spirituality at the end of the 13th century. Before 1300, all of the great theologians of the church, whether Chrysostom or Gregory of Nyssa or Augustine or Bernard of Clairvaux, were formed by spiritual disciplines were yet and yet were at their core theologians. Clairvaux, for example, was the chief writer in drawing up the synodal statutes of the Council of Troyes. He was famous for his theological debates with Peter Abelard. He's also founding monasteries and giving us Lectio Divina. After 1300, all the great masters of spirituality, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, Blaise Pascal, all the way up to Thomas Merton, were not academic theologians. The division of theology and spirituality as two separate divisions has ended up harming both. And one of the restorations embodied by the Wesleyan vision is that grand nuptial embrace which unites head and heart. Charles Wesley captures in his hymn, and if you leave the doors out this way, make sure you look at the statue out here of Charles Wesley. God bless him. He's out there still directing eternally. (laughs) Writing hymns forever. We have this line on that statue. Unite the pair so long disjoined, Knowledge and vital piety, learning and holiness combined, and truth and love let all men see. That's at the heart of who we are. John Wesley is wrongly accused of being not a real theologian because he was also interested in the disciplines which give rise to authentic spirituality. 
Wesley may not have produced the institutes of the Christian religion, but he produced a movement that has changed the world. This, my friends, is not a weakness of Wesley. It is his very genius, reuniting what has been divided over 300 years. And by the way, why here at Asbury we have the school of theology and formation in one school? Thanks be to God. Thank you, James. Where is James? There he is. I thought you disappeared. As the world is drawn to our wholeness, they ask us for a reason within us. And we need to be able to be able to articulate that reason with clarity. We cannot do this because we ourselves have a contentative about the Christian proclamation. One of the surest signs of this is even we talk about our message as if it's only, and I'm quoting what is heard a hundred times across our movement, it is about our perspective or what works for us. This is not the proclamation of the risen Lord for the history of the world. Asbury's must embody afresh the deep commitment that central to formation is the formation of mind. Learn to think about things well and have the courage to articulate it and proclaim it out into the world. We must recognize the powerful catechesis which unintentionally takes place in the wider culture, which affirms a whole wide array of non-Christian assumptions. Therefore, we must counter that catechesis with a deep commitment to Christian discipleship which reclaims our distinctive voice in the myriad of competing voices in the loss of a moral center. We must reclaim the hard work of discipleship and forming the heart and mind to occupy the newly emerging cultural landscape. We must reclaim the patristic tradition of the apologist who engaged with fervor the intellectual climate of their day. Our struggles over same-sex marriage and gender reassignment are just two vivid examples of how much homework we have to do. We are experiencing the rise of a new Gnosticism, and this challenge will force us to go back and do the difficult work of articulating a Christian theology of the body. But this cannot be done until we give ourselves over to the formation of the mind. Without this, we're like the schoolboy who refuses to do his homework and then complains that he failed the exam. The culture is testing us, and we must do our homework and have coherent answers for the moral quagmires of our time. We must also recognize the many distractions which keep us from articulating the gospel in compelling ways in our day. The once congenial world of Christendom and the broad shared cultural assumptions is now clearly in the rearview mirror, and we must rise to the new realities we are facing. Third paradigm shift. The third paradigm shift which we must embrace is the need to embrace a deeper deeper ecumenism in our public witness. We must transcend the divides which have long characterized our understanding of our place in the Christian world. We know of the classic divides between Roman Catholic and Protestant, between Protestant mainline liberal liberals, Protestant mainline conservatives, between evangelicals and fundamentalists, between charismatics and non-charismatics, between Reformed and Arminian, between liturgical and non-liturgical. Shall I go on? These are the categories that have largely defined how we position ourselves in the body of Christ. So you come to Christ, and slowly but surely you begin to identify yourselves as a mainline or evangelical or fundamentalist or Pentecostal or charismatic or Arminian or whatever. Now, brothers and sisters, without diminishing the importance of these distinctions, 
We must recognize how they are influenced, sometimes heightened, sometimes diminished, as we collectively find our way in this new, increasingly post-Christian setting. When I first went to India, at the time that we first went there, there are only one Christian for every 3,000 villages in North India. If you're going into a region of the world where there's one Christian for 3,000 villages, you'd be surprised how gracious you are about the one that you find. This calls for fresh alignments and a deeper shared commitment, even while we hold our cherished distinctives. This is not a call to some kind of generic Christianity, but it is a call to a deep commitment to historic faith, which recognizes that some of the boundaries which have divided Christians play out differently when the church finds itself in a culture increasingly hostile to malformed perceptions of what it means to be even a Christian at all. Many churches across the whole spectrum of Christian identity have been co-opted in different ways by the surrounding culture, and we need each other to expose that. Our observations are too shallow if we think that only the other Christians have been co-opted, but not our group. In this reassessment, we as Wesleyans have the advantage, I think, because we occupy as part of our DNA a conciliar tradition which has never been easily pigeonholed as evangelical, mainline, charismatic, non-charismatic, liturgical, non-liturgical, whatever. Our distinctive Western identity will, of course, remain vital, but the very identity allows us fresh opportunities for new engagement. Surely we have to understand that in an increasingly post-Christian culture, no one has a clue what it means to be a Baptist or a charismatic or a Lutheran. They don't know. If you drive from Wilmore to Lexington, you'll pass dozens of churches, and it will say a lot to everybody in this room. It means a ton of you. You could, you could do speeches about it. But I promise you, the world has no idea what that means, and mostly it makes them feel like there is no coherent Christian message at all. Historically, 17th century pietism, although it was birthed within Lutheranism, eventually had a profound impact on the whole of the Protestant movement that it now is much of what we embrace. It created powerful new alignments in the church. The holiness movement, 19th century, gave, did give birth to several new denominations, but the deeper story of the holiness movement was it forced the larger church to think deeply about what it meant to be having, having the Holy Spirit in your lives and discipleship and the consecrated life, all of those things. The 20th century charismatic movement had huge impact on both Protestant and Roman Catholic Christians, and yet it never belonged to any denomination. The 20th century neo-evangelical movement was neither bird then nor housed in any single denomination. It was a movement of theological cohesion which brought fresh alignments across 40 different denominations, ranging from Assembly of God to Christian Missionary Alliance, Evangelical Presbyterians, Free Methodists, Wesleyans, PCA, Salvation Army, all members of the the, uh, the evangelical uh, National Association of Evangelicals. In short, the evangelical movement had a coalescing impact on the whole Christian landscape. Today, we need to find new forms of alignment with all those committed to historic faith, the defining creeds of the faith, and ecumenical count consensus of the patristic fathers. We do not know what this yet will look like, but the categories that have long defined us are not no longer fully suitable for the cultural and ecclesiastical terrain which we now face. The field of play has changed, 
and we need to better understand the new cultural space that we occupy. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm a baseball fan. I love baseball. God, on this eighth day, he created baseball. <laughs> so you can imagine my excitement this past summer when for the first time in history, the New York Yankees played the Boston Red Sox in London. My favorite team and most hated team meeting together in London, of all places. First time it's ever happened. Now, they realized a bit late in the process that a soccer field is not suitable to play baseball. <laughs> but they were committed to the series. For example, British soil is too slick when, play, when it's wet to play baseball. The lights for a soccer field were way too low to survive baseballs flying through the air. Get this, they had to bring in 345 tons of dirt and clay across the Atlantic by a company called DuraEdge from Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Anybody here from Pennsylvania? Look at this. Part of your state is now in London. <laughs> 345 tons of Pennsylvania was carried over to London to make a proper field. The lights were wrapped in chicken wire. They used every chicken wire available in the whole country to wrap the lights so they wouldn't be destroyed. These are just a few examples of what which would happen, what had to happen to make uh, baseball suitable to be played on a soccer field. Well, today we can no longer ignore that we are trying to play Christianity on a cultural field which is alien to the Christian faith. We must, symbolically speaking, bring in 345 tons of catechesis. <laughs> Maybe from Pennsylvania, who knows? <laughs> they got it over there. Protect things once thought assumed. Wow, you know, the definition of marriage, light got broke out. Wow, when did that happen? How did that happen? We're playing a different game. The field is different. We have to do this in order to think better. You know, respond to those issues that we are facing. We have a steep uphill climb if we were to establish vibrant communities who embody the means of grace, who learn to think Christianly, and who better understand the role of the wider church as we collectively face these challenges together. Well, we have faced these challenges before in our long and checkered history, and we will do it again. And I just thank God that the church of Jesus Christ will always flourish because Jesus said that even though the gates of hell stand against us, he will build his church. Thanks be to God for that. Amen.